Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Francisco Ferrer and the Modern School Movement. Our music today comes entirely from the live album Bells by American free jazz saxophonist Albert Eiler, recorded at the Town Hall in New York City in 1965. It just makes sound sense for this show. Francisco Ferrer, whom the New York Times called a philosophical anarchist, was executed in Spain in 1909 for suspicion of insurrection against the Spanish king, and he quickly became an international martyr to the cause of free thought in opposition to religious dogma and compulsory education at the hands of the state and the church. In the wake of his death, Modern schools based on his pedagogical design sprouted across Europe and the United States and extended as far as Brazil, China, Mexico, and Poland. Though it's certain Ferrer had no hand in the insurrection of the so-called Tragic Week, Emma Goldman made plain that, quote, Had Ferrer actually organized the riots, had he fought on the barricades, had he hurled a hundred bombs, he could not have been so dangerous to the Catholic Church and to despotism as with his opposition to discipline and restraint. Discipline and restraint, are they not back of all evils in the world? Slavery, submission, poverty, all misery, all social iniquities result from discipline and restraint. Indeed, Ferrer was dangerous. Therefore, he had to die. October 13th, 1909, in the ditch of Montjuich. Unquote. As discussed last week in our show on anarchy and education, we know our schools not only model but teach authoritarianism, patriotism and nationalism, and prize abstraction. Our children learn canons of approved thought. We learn of our so-called national heroes and founders without critical insight. We study wars we claim no responsibility for, praise the great discoveries of lone white men whose innovations first chain us to factory labor and then modernize us out of our jobs. We learn nothing of socialism, communism, the labor movement, or the very history of labor struggle in the U.S. You literally pledge allegiance first to a flag, then a nation, then a thing called republic, and all of it under a mythical construction of belief. The martyrdom of Ferrer would appear to have been for naught. But the modern school movement was not a new pedagogy. We have known its truths for as long as governments have forced children into rows and rote learning. We learn best by doing, by experience, by first-hand knowledge. Our education must be based on freedom and love rather than on tyranny and fear. Today's guest via Skype is Mark Bray, a political organizer and historian of human rights, terrorism, and political radicalism in modern Europe. He's the author of Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook out from Melville House in 2017, and most recently, the co-editor of Anarchist Education and the Modern School, a Francisco Ferrer reader, published by PM Press in 2018. And now, Francisco Ferrer and the Modern School on Interchange on WFHB. (laughs) 
Welcome to Interchange, Mark Bray. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, Mark, your previous book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, got quite a bit of media attention, and I can't imagine so much with Ferrer, right? Not a surprise, perhaps, no. but why Ferrer? Uh, why now? Uh, your previous book, uh, I think, got quite a bit of attention, but uh, right. I can't imagine that Ferrer does. Right. No, no, it's more of a niche topic. I actually finished the Ferrer book before Antifa, uh, before I even wrote it. It's just that normally the publishing process takes sometimes up to a year, a year and a half. Antifa was sort of rushed to press right in the aftermath of Charlottesville. And a lot of the attention that it, it received becoming a bestseller was because of the timing of the tragic death of Heather Heyer, mm. uh, the murder of Heather Heyer, I should say. Um, Ferrer, you know, the, the history of the modern school, the history of anarchist and radical, ed- radical education is um, a topic I'm very interested in, but you know, it's more of a specialized topic, of course. But we're going to make it less specialized tonight. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, Ferrer is a figure, uh, I'm sure, as you say, is, is, is a speci- has specialized, excuse me, that is uh, uh, something or someone that people know who studied this particular movement, study education and study particular movements in ed- education. Uh, but Ferrer and the modern school had quite an influence uh, at at one time, so give us a brief biography, if you can, of Ferrer himself, and then we'll go into the uh, his own milieu, what it was like to be in Spain at the time. Certainly. So Francisco Ferrer was a, um, a Spanish anarchist, radical educator in the early 20th century, most known for creating the Modern School, which was a school that was well ahead of its time in um, rejecting. Uh, grades, rewards and punishments, having co-education, having a focus on science. And he was executed in 1909. He was alleged as being the mastermind of this uprising, uh, which he wasn't. Uh, And then subsequently, um, there was a protest movement that really spread around the world against his wrongful uh, execution. And then subsequently, what was called the modern school movement was created um, in countries like Poland, China, Japan, Argentina, the United States, to create these kinds of alternative, radical, um, student-centered learning environments. And so certainly in the 19-teens, 1920s, um, Francisco Ferrer and his educational legacy were not marginal in terms of the kind of global scene. Hmm. Well, um, so what was Ferrer uh, working against in the first place? It's, uh, uh, I think part of our, our difficulty frequently with history is trying to understand where, where people situate in that past that we often want to talk about and, 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 and kind of relate to ourselves. So, but there's, this was a specific environment in Spain that he was dealing with. That's right. I mean, some of his educational ideas today sound commonplace or maybe slightly outside of the box. Uh, coeducation is the norm, uh, you know, and a, a focus on science, student-centered learning. But in early 20th century Spain, uh, education was pretty much dominated by a very conservative Catholic church. Um, education was uh, segregated by um, sex. The students were basically just kind of taught Catholic teachings. And um, in that sense, his school was seen as a really serious threat to what were considered the kind of ideological pillars of society um, around Catholicism, around a very traditional understanding of gender, of the family, of society. And so that's really the underlying reason why he was executed, along with his other radical activities, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And in 1909, 
uh, there was this big societal debate in Spain around education, around the legacy of Francisco Ferrer. And this inspired, of course, people to take up his model around the world. Hmm. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Mark Bray, author of uh, Anarchist Education and the Modern School, a Francisco Ferrer reader. Uh, so basically, Ferrer is working against the dogma of the Catholic Church. Catholic Church. Uh, you mentioned, uh, obviously, is executed and primarily for this uh, this stance against the Catholic Church. He was an anarchist, uh, or uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, the New York Times called him a philosophical anarchist. And do we need to try to understand what kind of anarchist Ferrer was? Uh, was he something different than anarchist? Did he straddle a couple of philosophical positions? Was he just a, a man who did multiple things at, at the same time? Well, what, part of what makes Francisco Ferrer such a fascinating historical figure is that he drew on influences from different political ideas. He participated in different kinds of movements. Um, in his youth, he was part of what was called the Republican movement, which, of course, is not the same as the Republican Party in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a movement focused on having a republic rather than a, a monarchy in Spain. In the 1890s, he dabbled with electoral socialism. In the late 1890s, he became kind of an anarchist, but still sort of retained some ideas from these other kinds of movements. So part of what's interesting is that he participates in anarchist milieu. He's involved in funding a newspaper called The General Strike that promoted labor organizing in Spain. He was also involved in uh, movements for uh, promoting birth control. So some of the earliest um, public presentations around sex ed, around providing contraceptives in Spain, are organized by some of Ferrer's uh, associates in the early 20th century. Um, and as far as his anarchism specifically, he didn't talk about it publicly, which is what makes this so interesting. He was um, the founder of the modern school, and in order to prevent the school from being shut down, he said, look, I'm not a part of any philosophical or political school. I'm interested in education and learning and science. But privately, when he'd write under a pen name, he would talk about the need for a revolutionary general strike, uh, the need to overthrow the monarchy. So in that way, he, he had a different kind of double life politically, and even that life was was really complex. And the, uh, the pseudonym he used was uh, Cero or Zero, right? Right, because he because he was a Freemason. And so some listeners may be like, well, what, what the heck does that have to do with anything? But free, Freemasonry in the early 20th century was this interesting kind of network where all sorts of different radicals and unionists and free thinkers and even a lot of really important politicians and um, anti-colonial rebels around the world interacted with each other, shared ideas. And so for, for Ferrer, that was a formative part of his political journey. Hmm. Now, at the time, again, it's a, it's a pretty heady mix of people all over the place uh, having these similar kinds of educational ideas, pedagogical ideas. Uh, uh, we can list them uh, throughout time, but generally uh, we can look at uh, Bakunin, we can look at uh, Paul Robin uh, or Robin, uh, I guess is maybe how you say his name, uh, who is French, I believe. Um, you can look at Kropotkin. Uh, you, you just have a uh, Pestalozzi. You have a list of people who are, who are as you say, probably uh, well-known in edu- educational circles now when we're trying to understand what it is to, to create a, a, a student environment. But part of, the, part of what's really important here is that this is an 
um, maybe uh, we could look at it as an anti-institutional environment. Uh, especially we can look at Ferrer and say this is an anti-church, uh, anti-Catholic church, anti-religious dogma. He was an, an atheist, right? That's right. And so especially in, in such a Catholic country as Spain, but even also if you look at Western Europe, the legacy of the French Revolution in France, um, the legacy of resistance to the Catholic Church was central to a lot of revolutionary movements in a way that it, it's a little different today, of course, in much of the world. Um, but that legacy still persists. But right, Ferrer was in, influenced by the figures you mentioned and many others. Um, he was only uh, formally educated until the age of 13. So he was really a self-taught guy who was looking for new ideas didn't want to get stuck in, in what he considered to be the kind of old, uh, worn-out ideas of the past. And what made him different was not as much his ideas, which these various different thinkers had already come up with, but the fact that he put into practice uh, many of these um, notions in an actual school with uh, several hundred students. Um, and you know the successes and failures of that school are, are what make this an, a fascinating story. Yeah, and those, uh, I think it was about five years that it lasted before uh, the crackdown. He, I think he got up to, I don't know, in the thousands or, or like a 1,700, 1,600 students? If you're interested, the numbers are in the book. I don't remember exactly, don't remember. But, but, but you know, even beyond the number of students that attended his school, there the books that the school produced were used in other schools in mm. Spain, and his ideas, of course, as we discussed, were picked up elsewhere. Right. Well, let's uh, let's take a break. It's uh, we'll go to this break, continuing to listen to Albert Eiler's Bells, uh, and we'll hear uh, sections of that throughout. Uh, when we come back, more with Mark Bray on Francisco Ferrer and the modern school when Interchange returns. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. You're listening to Interchange on Community Radio WFHB. And that was Albert Eiler with uh, Bells. It was a section of Bells. Eiler, a free jazz saxophonist. Uh, 
We're talking with Mark Bray about Francisco Ferrer and the modern school. Here's a little bit from Ferrer himself on rewards and punishments. In the modern school, there'll be no rewards and no punishments. There'll be no examinations to puff up some children with the flattering title of excellent, to give others the vulgar title of good, and make others unhappy with a consciousness of incapacity and failure. These features of the existing official and religious schools, which are quite in accord with their reactionary environment and aim, cannot, for the reasons I've given, be admitted to the modern school. No rewards, no punishments, no grades. Mark Bray. Right. So um, Francisco Ferrer, as we've been discussing, was an anarchist. He also was very much taken with the new scientific ideas of the era, uh, focused around uh, a, quite an optimism around the potential of scientific knowledge to you know, emancipate humanity. So for him, the idea was not to buy into the kind of hierarchies that define an oppressive society, but to promote learning for learning's sake, to allow students to explore their own interests um, through the course of the school. But what's interesting that I discuss in the book is that these ideas were not hallmarks of the school in the beginning. Hmm. Early on, the school did give grades, and not only did they give grades, they published them in the school newspaper so that the whole community could see what grades the different Hmm. students got. But after a while, like any institution, it evolved, and so those ideas reflect what the school was like towards the end. Hmm. So, uh, again, let's stress the the milieu again he was in uh, Catholic Spain at the time had something like a uh, 68% of the population couldn't read or write that sounds about right yeah a very high illiteracy um, a very impoverished society um, similar perhaps during the time to maybe Italy Russia um, so for Ferrer and for many of the anarchists they believe that a central part of social um, social revolutionary movements was education, was Mm -hmm. literacy going from town to town and making it so that people could um, get beyond what Ferrer and his associates would have described as kind of a superstitious Catholic perspective. Hmm. Now, you mentioned their science, natural sciences in particular, observation, things of that nature. Is this what is meant by a rational education then? That's right. So Ferrer again, had this positivist notion that there was a unitary sense of truth, there was one truth, and that could be unlocked through science, rationality, reflection, logic. And so, for him, there was a direct line between, you know, teaching students how to look at a microscope and anarchist social revolution. For him, they were all part of the same story. And uh, I think we do, again, want to stress that there is literally uh, the idea that to come together in this space to learn uh, together, but also to learn at your own pace, at your own interest, to discover what it is to be a free thinker, a free learner, to find pleasure in learning. These are all things that we actually pay lip service still and, and yet have have done no, done none of these things in our current system generally, right? So we can certainly point to exceptions, but we still sort of live in a world that isn't very much a, a free-thinking society, especially when it comes to schools. That's right. The, the, the ir- irony, though, is that many teachers, many educators today would believe that we do, right? We have a lot of lip service around pursuing your dreams, pursuing your own ideas, thinking for yourself. No one in the United States or very few people want to believe that they just follow the herd. Everyone wants to think that they're original, but the way that that's um, branded, marketed, actually made to be is is rather narrow and is, of course, in, the, in, in accord with what the job market wants, um, what the economy wants. And that's no surprise considering the kind of origins of 
public education have everything to do with the needs of a developing capitalist economy. Right. So it's, again, the way that we believe we're free, uh, the, the way we do talk about our freedoms, talk about the way we educate, talk about public education as being an important thing, uh, and uh, in a way ignore or do our best to not even imagine that we're shoved into a hierarchical, hierarchical system that's authoritarian uh, and, and maintains a status quo, maintains a class uh, division, maintains all these things that we would struggle to say, well, what, what makes us free in America if this is how we raise our children? Certainly. And, and another interesting perspective that Ferrer shares that, that is emphasized throughout the book is that, you know, a, a kind of hierarchical capitalist society can recuperate innovations in pedagogical form. Mm. So the notion of allowing students to sort of do their own independent projects or decide what courses they want to take uh, or any kind of innovation of form. I mean, even thinking about the sort of uh, development of Montessori schools, some mm. of them even public um, any of those forms, as important as they certainly are, if they're within a society that still promotes certain kinds of um, egotistical capitalist uh, values, will be recuperated. And so he argues in his school, and there's interesting debates with other anarchists at the time who are in favor of what they describe as neutral education. Ferrer argues for essentially an education that explicitly critiques um, capitalism, the state the church, and so forth. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Mark Bray, author of Anarchist Education in the Modern School, a Francisco Ferrer reader. So that's uh, that's something more like a moral education then. Right. Well, so, so th- that's an interesting debate. What's the relationship between form and content? And that's not just a debate within anarchist perspectives of an education, but I think is a debate in education as a whole can education be neutral? Do we, no matter who we are, whether we try not to or, or, or whatever, necessarily inculcate values into students? And certain values, that's not controversial, right? Telling little kids they should share. Well, that actually sort of has important political implications if you follow that through and think about what it would mean to live in a society that shares. Um, so Ferrer gets into these interesting debates. Ferrer is certain that these kinds of ethical or moral or political ideas have the same status in relationship to objective truth as the natural sciences. And so in that way, he sees it as sort of a a uniform education, which there's a lot of reasons to be critical of that, and it's not a common perspective today. Mm. So uh, what what this group believes too is that the the child actually begins in in a state not uh, you know I don't want to make it metaphysical but you know you're you're a blank slate on some level you're uh, you're uh, shaped by your environment you're if you're in an educational setting that is that does create or craft this sense of of hierarchy and sense of value that based on punishment and reward and social status that's the kind of people you create it, it doesn't create free sharing free thinking individuals Right, and and that's why I think often the the debates around quote unquote human nature are are strange because there's you know one side human beings are naturally good, the other side human beings are naturally bad. Um, but I think that really it's during the 19th century that you get these different kinds of sociological radical perspectives that said that people are generally however society makes them. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to think about making different kinds of people, uh, it's important to start with how they learn, how they are in school, Um, so argued Ferrer and his associates. But they also recognize that 
um, the school alone can't do it. So they had articles in their newspaper about how parents should change how they treat their children, giving them more autonomy and respect, and thinking about how they, they fit into the larger society. Well, autonomy and respect is important here, and it's also another pillar of this situation is that the, the teacher isn't the master and the student isn't the servant or the submissive. That's certainly the idea. Um, in practice, <laughs> hard to in practice, practice that, right? yeah. you know, it's, it's hard to practice. Um, that's without question. But <laughs> certainly what I think many listeners would imagine in terms of student-centered education, uh, the reality of the modern school was more traditional than one might imagine. They still had sort of relatively rigid time slots with certain kinds of lessons or activities scheduled. They had specific books for the students to look at. And so, you know, again, all of these ideas have to be understood in their context. And as radical as some of the modern school's proposals were for 1905, they were still in 1905. So there is a sense that it's important to raise uh, children in a in a context that creates, again, a certain kind of person. This is a kind of indoctrination like any other, but one in which you are indoctrinating to dignity, uh, indoctrinating to fairness, these things that we talk, again, we pay lip service to, but generally our system, uh, our, our organizations, uh, you know, basically privilege and reward a very different perspective. Right, so again, the question is, can you have a neutral education? Mm -hmm. I'm very skeptical of that notion. And so I think it's important to recognize the difference between a kind of quote-unquote indoctrination that says, you know, um, do whatever the teacher tells you no matter what, do whatever the president tells you no matter what, do whatever your boss tells you no matter what, versus an indoctrination that says, think for yourself, um, no one is better than you are, we're all equal, and so forth. Both are in a certain sense a kind of indoctrination because you're going to inculcate these values, but I think the sort of the goal of creating um, self-governing individuals, if you would, um, is a little bit different, and that's ultimately what Ferrer was pursuing, although what he meant by that, the kinds of conclusions he wanted the students to come to, were very explicitly political. Mm. So could you, uh, I guess uh, sometimes it, it's hard to think about the anarchist society or an idea that says uh, work together or don't work together, but you know, seek to, seek to find uh, ways to learn or educate to your own passions and, and really find out how, how things are in the world because of that interest and pleasure, uh, but also educating to this idea of uh, no master in, in the sense of uh, you don't need to be protected or be shown uh, that or be told what to do, as you say, uh, don't just do what the president says, but be able to do things on your own or together or in concert in a syndicalist kind of way, I suppose. Is that generally what this kind of education is seeking to do, to move away from the organizations that are hierarchical and to slot you into class divisions? Certainly. I mean, if, if we take a step back and, and think for a minute of what the different modern schools look like that were created in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. the, the modern schools that were created in the United States were generally actually much more um, student-centered and created a lot more space for student initiative than the Barcelona modern school. Mm -hmm. So the, the what they called the Stelton Colony in New Jersey allowed students to basically decide when and what they wanted to learn whenever they wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a little different because they both lived and studied in the same location, but some students decided they weren't interested in learning to read until they were 10 years old. Uh, yet I met one of those students uh, at an event in New Jersey who later become 
he became an engineer, so clearly it didn't ha- hamper his education. But in in the Barcelona modern school, there was less room for the students to sort of decide when and what. But the ideal, of course, would be that you know, if students could decide what they wanted to learn, decide whether they wanted to be in the classroom, and created uh, uh, spaces were created for them to pursue things they were naturally interested in without concern for whether it would end up getting them a job, uh, without concern for how they would fit into sort of the, the boxes that society created for them, would create a more genuine learning environment. Um, and, you know, looking at the kind of uh, funding crisis that higher education is in these days with, uh, you know, humanities and social sciences projects being slashed in favor of business schools, we can see how the, the dictates of the economy really affect what people are learning. Mm. Well, it's time for another break. We'll continue to listen to Albert Eiler's Bells. Uh, when we come back, more with Mark Bray on first. Francisco Ferrer. We'll talk a little bit more about the Stelton School, perhaps, and uh, maybe integral education as we come back from a break. Stay with us on Interchange. Back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Excuse me, it's hard to get your own name wrong, isn't it? 
Uh, <laughs> our show is The Martyrdom of Francisco Ferrer. Our guest via Skype is Mark Bray, co-editor of a recent Francisco Ferrer reader published by PM Press called Anarchist Education in the Modern School. Uh, when we went to the break, uh, uh, Mark, you mentioned something about uh, someone who decided not to read uh, until they were uh, in ten, t- about 10 years old and they went on to, to become an engineer out of a certain, uh, they were at a certain U.S. Uh, modern school. One of the points in this environment, in this school pedagogy, is that no books too soon, right? That reading is one of their no-nos, so that you need to be hands-on, you need to learn by observing, you need to learn in that kind of environment, and that books are, are a bad thing to, to start out with. That was a perspective that was uh, common in the late 19th century among radicals. It, it, it's sort of reminiscent of the debates that parents have today about screen time with kids. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Don't let them just be locked into a screen. Well, back then it was don't just let them be locked into a book. Have them get outside mm. and experience the world. Ferrer, though, was, was more sympathetic to books than that. And uh, a big part of his quest educationally was finding what he considered to be the right kind of books that would inculcate the right kinds of values and ideas for his students. So in the modern school, um, one of the books that he loved assigning his students was called The Adventures of Nono, with Nono being this little boy character who goes to this sort of alternative universe where there's justice, and then he goes to this evil alternative universe, which is, of course, representing kind of the worst of industrial capitalism. So (laughs) those kinds of moralizing tales were also a part of uh, sort of how the little kids at the modern school learned. I'm going to have to get a copy of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's an, an, an English language edition, but maybe someday. Well, project to translate, Mark Bray. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Uh, but also uh, some of the texts in the modern school were, um, you know, I guess, uh, classics of anarchy as well, right? Anarchist Morality by Peter Kropotkin, War by Charles Mulatto, is that right? Uh, A Free World uh, by uh, Jean Grave. Uh, right, right. Well, well, some of those were read in the school. Some of them were published by the Modern School Publishing House, mm-hmm. which published books for, for children, but also books for adults. Um, oh, okay. At one point, Ferrer wanted to create a night school for adults, but it didn't get off the ground. Mm. Um, but some of those were designed for kids and some of them for adults. So night school and adult education, again, a key component, as we were talking earlier about getting, uh, educating other people as well, educating parents, educating parents about how to raise their children. And you mentioned, you know, doing things the right way there, right? Choosing the right books, uh, saying the right things, et cetera. So the question is, you know, we, you, you are talking about choosing an ideology or choosing a political perspective or choosing a way in which to live. For Ferrer, uh, anti-church, uh, uh, anti-capitalist, anti-statist, uh, perhaps anti-militarist, you know? Uh, right. Yeah. Right. For Ferrer, it was very clear in that way. And I want to just be clear and reiterate that there were anarchists at the time who did not see it that way, mm-hmm. who, who believed there should be more of an open-ended educational space for students to come to their own conclusions. And anarchists and other radicals today have, have very different views on truth and education and so forth. But for Francisco Ferreira and the modern school, that was certainly the case. There was one truth. Uh, you could figure out what that truth was by starting an investigation through science, rationality, empirical inquiry, follow it through logic. And then he argued that necessarily meant you would reject um, the kind of, quote unquote, superstition of the church. Uh, the kind of cutthroat nature of capitalism and the hierarchy of the state. 
Hmm. Well, how do you talk about these things within that environment if you if, if you think something superstitious? What what is the you know is there a current pedagogy that says do you lead lead people on to understand that um, things are superstitious? You know these are difficult things to talk about. It's why we're we're generally not allowed really to talk about these things in in education, right? Right. Well, I mean, again, the question is. First, what are the perspectives of the parents of the students, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. much of what education is, especially with small children, is about what do the parents believe, what will they get upset with? So, for example, uh, Francisco Ferrer tried to incorporate a uh, sex ed class into the modern school, and the parents uh, raised uh, a fuss, and they got rid of it right away. Mm-hmm. So they certainly weren't ready for that. But otherwise, they were generally progressive left-leaning parents. Of course, why why else would they send their students to the, their children to this school? Um, and so they, as far as I could tell, were not put off by general writing assignments about why money is bad, or general assignments about why um, if if humanity really were more rational, there would be no war because it's self-destructive for humanity. Of course, in the greater society, these things were very controversial. And that's why Francisco Ferrer was eventually executed. The the school was shut down and a lot of the books were banned. Um, But again, the more fundamental question is, how do you deal with the inevitable promotion of certain kinds of values that any kind of educator will have? And I suppose recognizing that you're necessarily, no matter how you, how hard you try, are going to have some sort of value system in place when you teach, but that allowing students to sort of read value systems as value systems and not assume that they're necessarily objective truth, but that they're kinds of texts or ideas that they can engage with seems to be a way to think about it. But that wasn't how Ferrer thought about it. Well, that's a pretty big, uh, big order there for any teacher <laughs> to, oh, yeah. to read value systems. Done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Mark Bray, author of Anarchist Education in the Modern School, a Francisco Ferrer reader. Uh, uh, also, Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook uh, from Melville House. Uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit about what integral education means then. It's, again, uh, a common topic or a common idea to talk about uh, education to to work with your hands, education that that is what we might call it vocational. Now, that's not exactly what they meant, right? Not exactly, but close. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, as you mentioned earlier, to understand the educational ideas of the modern school of Francisco Ferrer and of the anarchists of 100 years ago, it's important to recognize the context they were working in and the ideas they were responding to. So they're, they're in a very stratified capitalist society where a small percentage of society is groomed to have uh, a world of ideas where they don't have to use their hands to become bureaucrats or intellectuals. And the rest of society are working on the land or working in factories. And so there's a very clear physical um, gap in the different classes, which is more explicit back then than today. I mean, today you have um, so there are people who do work with in offices or on computers that don't get paid a lot. So it's not the same, but I think there's still an element of it. But it was much more clear and explicit back then. And so the idea of integral education was to try and transcend the gap that existed between learning with your hands and learning with your head. And in so doing, sort of take a step towards transcending the, the class gap and having ch- uh, children learn to do both. And that, for Ferrer, was important because he believed in cross-class education. He didn't want to create a school 
that was only for working class kids. He wanted um, kids of all class backgrounds to learn together and to have um, learning experiences with their, their hands and with their head. But also be able to value the work that you do and to see, as you say, to see across class that, you know, a class, a working class in particular, does things uh, of value, works hard, has pride. And then uh, the intellectual class or the, uh, I guess, the uh, the bourgeoisie might be, learn that that's something of dignity. Right. So uh, a lot of the lessons that the modern school students had were about the kind of you know, what they would describe as kind of the wonder of labor, um, how labor produces wealth, it produces the things that make the world go round. And so uh, one of the um, field trips that the students took was to a factory, actually, a, I think it was a wool textile factory, uh, where they were shown around and they were, you know, discussing how the machines operated with really a focus on how wonderful it is uh, what working class people do, the problem being from their perspective that the wealth that it, that this creates is not um, shared equally. So uh, let's look a little bit uh, uh, before we go to the break uh, at how Ferrer made his way into the world in a sense because uh, from uh, this conversation it's it's fairly clear there's nothing necessarily new in Ferrer's pedagogy there's nothing that isn't sort of transforming as he goes as well the what Ferrer does or what happens to Ferrer in the modern school is that he's murdered and he becomes a martyr to this particular cause. Um, that's right. I mean, if he had not been executed in 1909, his ideas would not have gained the same amount of currency. But that having been said, you know, he got these ideas from all these other thinkers. And so it was in the air. Right. Um, so in a certain sense, the modern school movement that followed on his death used him as a sort of uh, a motivation, a kind of stimulant to ideas that were already uh, fairly popular. So uh, the martyrdom um, was an, uh, an occasion to one, look at what happened in Spain, look at this modern, this is a modern world. This is, you know, not uh, the feudal society, right? This, and here is the church, here is the government, uh, just uh, summarily executing uh, a teacher, an educator, uh, especially for a trumped up charge. But, but I think in particular, we note that Ferrer is involved in anarchist dealings, is involved in some, some things that that would have gotten him uh, sent to prison or, or executed also. That's true. And that's another thing that I discuss in, in the book, Anarchist Education in the Modern School, is that the the kind of public view of Ferrer was this neutral, nonviolent, rational educator who rejected all political ideas. Behind the scenes, he was a very committed revolutionary. And so while it was true that in 1909, he had nothing to do with the insurrection that he was blamed for. He very much wanted to have a lot to do with that insurrection. Mm. When it started, and this, again, was an insurrection against conscription for a war in Morocco, a colonial war, um, Ferrer went around to all the different political leaders, the trade unionists, the, the different radicals, trying to give his advice, trying to sort of participate in the planning of this rebellion. But at every turn, they really didn't want to talk to him, in large part because he had been associated with a failed assassination attempt on the life of the Spanish king in 1906, and people didn't want to be seen with him. <laughs> he, he was, uh, I think you say, you know, he didn't really have the influence on any of the parties that he was kind of involved with. Right, and, and again, he started the modern school because one of the students that he was teaching Spanish to in Paris uh, 
left him a, a bunch of wealth in her will. He was seen as a little bit too bourgeois by some of the workers. He was seen as a little too much of an anarchist by the Republicans, a little too much of a Republican by the anarchists. So, uh, you know, that's the the danger of you when you're everything to everyone, you can be n- nothing to, to anyone. So, um, that's you know that's the kind of co- complexities of history that people don't always just fall into boxes. Yeah, uh, it's time for our final break. Again, we're going to listen to Albert Eiler's Bells. This is another section from there. More with Mark Bray on Francisco Ferrer and anarchist education. Stay with us. Change. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is The Martyrdom of Francisco Ferrer. Our guest via Skype, Mark Bray, co-editor of a recent Francisco Ferrer reader published by PM Press called Anarchist Education and the Modern School. Uh, Mark, tell us a little bit about the book, the organization of the book, uh, and what a, a reader is going to, to find there. Right. So Francisco Ferrer uh, wrote a book called The Modern School back 100 years ago. And for many years, that was really all that existed in English about his school, was this book that he wrote about it, and it wasn't even a complete translation. So what we've done with the anarchist education in the modern school, the Francisco Ferrer reader, was include all sorts of correspondence that he had with his friends, with his lovers, um, other articles that he wrote about education, articles that his contemporaries wrote that were critical of what he was doing, and his kind of... um, secret writings about the the uh, bloody revolutionary general strike that he foresaw as the key to social revolution, the, the writings that were written under the pen name Zero, um, as well as other kinds of biographical essays about who he was, um, the importance that he had, the protest movement that developed after he was executed, and the, the really tremendous modern school movement that, that swept around the world in the decades following his death. So, for anyone who is interested in, in studying um, radical pedagogy or early 20th century radical history, there's, there's a lot of resources there. Um, 
the goal of having it be a reader is, of course, for these primary sources to be opportunities for people to think through some of these tough issues. Great. They, uh, it is it is kind of fun, too, to see that list of sort of famous people, I guess not sort of, actually very famous people at the time, uh, commenting on Ferrer as well. Camus in there, Havelock Ellis, Jack London, uh, so many uh, folks uh, clearly knew, knew, did they know Ferrer before this? <laughs> I mean, obviously not Camus, but uh, London is uh, a socialist at the time, right? Right. Um, I mean, some people knew who he was. I mean, he got a little bit famous after 1906 when he was on trial uh, for his alleged participation in the plot against the life of the Spanish king. But it was really when he got executed that a lot of people found out about him. Mm. Um, And so I would guess that a lot of those people probably found out after he was killed. Now you mentioned or that maybe, plot. Or maybe shortly before, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that plot, and that's one we're pretty sure Francisco Ferrer had a lot to do with. Uh, that's the general consensus of historians, which I agree with, although there's no definitive evidence. In short, um, the administrator of the Modern School Publishing House threw a bomb at the king on his wedding day in 1906, and shortly thereafter killed himself. Um, so the question is, what role did Ferrer have? It's not clear. It seems like he may have funded it. He may have um, provided some logistical support. At the very least, it seems he probably knew about it. Um, nevertheless, he was acquitted for lack of clear evidence. But when he was finally killed three years later, it's certain that the authorities had that earlier incident on their mind. Right. At the time, many, many, many people that were swept up in that tragic week um, uh, roundup for criminality uh, were were actually let go. Francisco Ferrer, not one of those. No, no, certainly not. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that um, I think is interesting, too, is this idea, again, of trying to, and I, it's hard for me to kind of leave it because um, it's the, the idea of shaping people, right? That we're kind right. of, we constantly argue about these things as if we're not supposed to try to do so uh, because it's against freedom and liberty, et cetera. While we live in a world where we're inundated by things that try to force us to be certain things, wear certain things, think certain things, like certain things, be against certain things, it's a constant barrage of messages we get, and yet we work so hard to imagine there's some neutral space. Right, and and so much of the messaging uh, disguises itself in that professed neutrality, right. that professed freedom. So I think there's a lot wrong with how Francisco Ferrer and the modern school operated. For me, the idea with history is not to look at something that happened 100 years ago and say, let's do the exact same thing. But that by studying it, by reading the kind of successes and failures, the perspectives they put forward, we can better reflect on what we're doing today. And so, you know, in that vein, I think the question is, how can we teach students to recognize that no text, no movie, no teacher is ever going to be neutral and to try and become really critical thinkers to analyze the world around them and to try and understand what kinds of social forces are trying to shape who they are? It's a good question, and it's a hard thing, too, because it does it does straddle that line of, of being skeptical about everything, right? To say, let's be skeptical of truth claims. Let's be sure. skeptical of, of who the authority is. But we all agree there has to be some authority somewhere. Well, there, I mean, we have to have a society. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the question is, what kinds of values the society promotes, who gets to decide what those values are, how we organize around them. And so the anarchist argument is that we should do that democratically, collectively, non-hierarchically, 
not only in terms of our decision-making, but in terms of how we organize work, consumption, production. And so that's that was Ferrer's vision. Um, and the question is, you know, how for those people who are interested in something along those lines is, is how to get there. It certainly ain't easy. <laughs> right. Well, I was looking through some things the other day, and I, I, I found a, a quote from, uh, uh, I guess, Gerard Winstanley of The Diggers, who basically said, you know, everybody needs to work and learn, right? Work and do book learning at the same time, book learning, um, to to educate uh, to educate um, how to work in an, and, and produce for, for sustenance for, for yourself, for your family, et cetera, and not, not be, able, not be uh, excuse me, able to work or, excuse me, be excused from working. So that when you're excused from working, you have leisure, uh, leisure to be idle, I guess, idlers is what he would call it, and then to become parasitic off the labor of others. This is a digger's yeah. pers- perspective. I'm not yeah, sure. th- that was an early perspective and in a certain sense an early kind of iteration around integral education, and that was very common in the radical workers' movement of the late 19th century. Um, they adopted a slogan taken from, um, I think it was from some Italian nationalist revolutionaries originally, um, no rights without responsibilities. Mm. So, you know, the, the kind of elite classes had the rights in practice without any sort of social responsibilities. The working classes in practice didn't have any rights, but they had all the responsibilities. And so the notion was that, um, you know, the product of labor should be owned by those who produce it. Mm-hmm. So what what is it we deal with now? We don't have, a, a I guess, in this country uh, so much that that can be translated into uh, or from this modern school era in a lot of ways. There's less uh, religion to deal with, although, of course, there's lots of religion in our school, in our schools, not our public schools per se, even though, as I noted at the beginning, there is the Pledge of Allegiance, and in our culture, we do have God in many, many, many public things. Uh, what What is it that um, 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 the modern school or free thinkers, what is it that we need to, to work um, against or define ways to educate differently in this current environment that is actually pushing against public education, which would be arguably not a great thing to many of these anarchists, uh, but uh, but is proposing that all things should be supported by pu- private education, charter education, privatized education, as well as religious schools. We're, we seem to be going back into those those pre-1900 periods. Yeah, the, the, the landscape of discussing radical horizons of education are very different in the United States in 2019 than they were in Spain in 1905. Sure. You know, in in Spain in 1905, the debate is essentially between, on the one hand, you have um, private Catholic education. On the other, you have public education, which was still pretty much Catholic education. And Mm -hmm. then you have these independent initiatives to create a radical alternative. Today, it's not so much creating an independent radical alternative, although I imagine there are some some small initiatives that that try to do that and more power to them. But the the threat to public education is even more egregious than whatever you would have to say negatively about public education. So for those who are interested in, you know, a kind of none of the above perspective, you know, you have to you have to make some strategic concessions to working to make things not worse than they are already, um, which is not necessarily the most Um, exciting political struggle, but is no less important. That having been said, you know, there are some interesting essays in the modern school book that I published where different teachers in public schools talk about working within the system to try and have their students be a little more critical about issues of class, issues of privilege. Um, There's an interesting example where a teacher 
uh, is reading a book where the students talk about um, pheasant. And the, the teacher asks the students, have any of you ever eaten pheasant? And these are mostly working class kids. And they're like, we don't know what a pheasant is. And he says, go home and ask your parents what a pheasant is. They go home, their parents don't know what a pheasant is. And so, you know, using these stories to basically uh, look at the class assumptions in everyday things, even around eating. Um, and so from that, I think we can think about how, regardless of, of the context, there's always work to be done to try and promote critical thinking a lot around the kinds of forms of oppression that that dominate our society well is there is is there a way to do that or um it's one of those things again i struggle with as a parent too i have kids uh, that have been in high school when uh, and have to deal with hearing their their instructors talk about the failures of socialism or the fact that there's only one one way to do things capitalism's the right way these things happen now excuse me uh, students and and uh, in schools or indoctrinated in this particular way, and if you think it's wrong, it's a it's a very difficult to, world to operate in. You know, we try to one want our children to succeed, uh, and succeed in a capitalist society is not necessarily to be a good um, human who helps other humans flourish. You have to look out for yourself, etc. We can have obviously a split personality about these things, but it's very difficult to to kind of work against what the entire society is giving you it is um it certainly is i mean i suppose one one way of thinking about bridging that gap is to say okay you know what was the role of the labor movement in getting the weekend and getting the minimum wage and you know what was the role of the civil rights movement in promoting racial justice and to look at how these kinds of changes that have made our society what it is at least that the, the better aspects of it mm-hmm. have come from the bottom up mm. and so In my experience, that's one way to sort of have a different conversation that Mm -hmm. heads in the same direction is to say, um, okay, you you will vote for whoever you vote for. Fine. That's a separate conversation, which we have way too often. Mm -hmm. Instead, let's talk about how whenever these people that get elected are in office, how will we push the envelope to try and really um, change the horizons of what's possible in politics? Mm -hmm. And and I think if you look to history, there's that it's just littered with examples of that happening. Mm -hmm. And. That's the best of what's what's happened, uh, you know. <laughs> that, no, that's great, and I understand that we do have examples. We do have to keep uh, having being heartened by them. That's our show, and as our show ends, we'll have to say goodbye also to Albert Eilers Bells. Uh, thanks to Mark Bray for joining us to discuss anarchist education in the modern school and its martyr, Francisco Ferrer. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much. Mark Bray's Francisco Ferrer Reader is published by PM Press. His co-editor on it is Rob Hayworth. Next up, Can Electoral Politics Lead to Revolution? August Nymphs joins us to show how Marx, Engels, and Lenin insisted on the value of the parliamentary process, running candidates in order to take stock in who's on your side and ready to make revolution. Voting for revolution, next time on Interchange. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange, volunteering and learning every week for the sheer pleasure of it. Our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.